So who is Jesus to you today? Who is Jesus to you today? The Bible tells us that they call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Is Jesus that to you today? Is he with you? Um, is he with you in your trials and tribulations? If you're going through a crisis, if you're suffering because of bad decisions or poor choices, is Jesus Emmanuel for you today? Sometimes we get the idea that if we accept Christ as our Savior, that solves all of our problems and removes all of the challenges. It doesn't. Many times it creates more, uh, just in a different way. So we still live in a sinful world among sinful people, including us, and uh, those outward things do not change. What changes is within us and how we respond to those things. And how we respond to those things determines what we are and what we become. It's the response. So I want us to challenge us today as we face various difficulties and problems, trials, temptations, attacks of the enemy and uh, results of our own foolishness to see Christ not only as the answer to the problem, but to see Christ in the problem itself. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, those two disciples had a problem. The problem was that Jesus had been crucified, dead, and buried three days earlier. Um, all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all their expectations were wrapped up in who he was and what they expected him to do for them. And, then, and they watched him die a shameful, excruciating, public death. And all of their hopes and dreams, I'm not talking about uh, what I'm going to do tomorrow, I'm talking about their dreams for eternity and their dreams of salvation and deliverance. All of that were gone. And so as they were walking along, uh, Jesus himself joined them. He was there in the flesh. They weren't looking for him. They didn't expect him. They didn't recognize him because they were so caught up with the problem. But the problem as they saw it was the means that God used to bring salvation and hope for them. They just couldn't see it. There are times when God pushes the problem at us to stimulate us and to challenge us to rethink and reshape our relationships. So we kind of go along our life, we fall into a routine, things are quote-unquote normal, it may not be pleasant or it may not be enjoyable, but you know what to expect because you're in the rut, <laughs> you're in that groove, you know, and you put your life kind of on autopilot and before you know it, 30 years has gone by and you look around and you say, what happened to my life? And you just kind of coasted 
And uh, you look around and you say, well, what was that all about? What did it mean? And what was fully accomplished? Did it count for anything at all? According to the scriptures, we're created in the image and likeness of God. And he, he gives our life meaning and purpose and direction, and it has value. Do we understand the value that he's entrusted to us? And how are we using it? Sometimes we become victims of other people's decisions. You remember Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, the attacks on him came from within his own family. His own half-brothers tried to kill him. Uh, threw him in a pit and were going to leave him. And then they saw an opportunity to make some money in the process and still get rid of him. And so they yank him out and sell him into slavery into a foreign country where he, had, he knows no one or nothing and nobody knows he's there except his brothers who sent him there. And they tell his father that he's dead and he's not going to get hope or help from anyone. And so he becomes, he moves from the favorite son of a very wealthy, powerful man to a slave. And it, it did not take long. Most of us, when we find ourselves a slave to something, we're amazed at how quick we became enslaved. Doesn't take long, does it, for our sins to control us. And so Joseph was there, and he was there for 20 years. And at the end of the 20 years, he had transitioned from a slave in a foreign pagan culture and country to a man who served time in prison for a crime which he did not commit. So it went from bad to worse for him. You know, you think you're a slave. I'll, I can't get any worse than that, can you? Try being a slave that's in prison <laughs> for something you didn't do. The opportunity was there for him to become a bitter, resentful, hateful person. Somehow, by the grace of God, he didn't. And he rose, through, again, through God's timing and God's plan, and he became the second most powerful person in the most, one of the most powerful countries in the world at that time. And then his brothers came to him seeking help. He recognized them right off. They did not recognize him at all. Twenty years had gone by. And he's got these men who caused him such pain and sorrow and suffering. He has them in his hand. And he can do to them whatever he wants. He has the power. He has the authority. He has the right. And by the standards of those days, he would have been justified in anything he did to them. Look at how he responds, though. He says it first in chapter 45 of Genesis where he reveals himself to them. But then even after that, he tells them he's forgiven them and all of that. Another 10 years go by. And when their father dies, they're afraid that he's going to remember old grudges. Like us. And so they come and they say, you know, before dad died, he asked us to tell you, please forgive us. And it broke Joseph's heart. Because he had really, genuinely, truly forgiven them. 
And they had trouble receiving that forgiveness. Sometimes we find ourselves in that place, right? Our guilt and our shame is so great that we have trouble believing that God can forgive us and set us free. And through Joseph, God had done that for these men. But they were stumbling over that. And so in Genesis chapter 50, they came and they asked him again to please forgive them. Joseph's first response, he wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, We are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? And when we hold people accountable and with unforgiveness, we're placing ourselves in the position of God. Joseph understood that. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Sometimes we're presented with a problem that looks as though it's going or was sent to break us. But it ends up building us up. That's what it did to Joseph. Made him a better man. Doesn't justify what was done to him. Does not negate the sinfulness of the brothers or their thought or their intent or their deeds. Doesn't negate any of that. But what it, what it tells us is that sometimes Christ can be in the problem and his grace is available and he can make us better people through that process, even if we're the victim. And also, if we're the perpetrator. God was at work not just to redeem Joseph, but to redeem his brothers. And that's what Joseph was trying to communicate to them. You know, John Wesley, he was surprised at the grace of God, and he made a statement. He said, I, I, I believed and I finally understood that God can forgive my sins, even mine. So Christ isn't beside us simply to help us find solutions. He's often in the problem itself, Christ with us, helping us towards honest thinking, because we deceive ourselves many times, supporting and guiding us to the point where he wants us to be. We have a good example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And uh, they've come through the wilderness wanderings and they're on the edge of the promised land getting ready to go in and take it because God has given it to them. And so Deuteronomy is kind of like the last will and testament of Moses. It's his last public address before he goes up on the mountain and, uh, and dies. And so he's trying to prepare these people for what's ahead. And part of the way he does that is reminding them where they've come from. But he makes these statements... And he says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness 
that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Notice who the actor is here, who's the initiator of this process. And he humbled you and let you hunger. He caused them to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord. He put them in that situation, caused them to be in need in a place where they could not help themselves. God directed them there for that purpose. It was not a pleasant experience. It wasn't a once-off thing. Forty years. And the grace of God is such a tremendous thing. These people were under the judgment of God because of their consistent, persistent rebellion and arrogance and turning away from God. And yet, every day for 40 years, the manna was there every morning. God providing for them, caring for them, meeting their needs. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, the Lord is good and gracious to everything that he has made. And he causes the sun to rise upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Every day is a gift. It's what we use it for that makes it good or evil. It's how we respond to the, to the blessing that God has given us. And so like in the wilderness, often the problem itself is part of the creative act of God. It's a means of revelation. It's an invitation to go deeper into our relationship with Christ. And if we were not pushed, we would never go. Think about it for a minute. Um, They're out in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is exhausted and he's asleep. And they get into this big gale that's blowing away. The, The waves are getting really big. They're coming, breaking over the boat. The boat's filling up with water. Uh, These are men who make their living on the sea. They know the sea very well and they are afraid that they're going to die. And Jesus is right there. And he's asleep. So they go over and they wake him up. Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? If God is with you, what is there to fear? Paul says that, right? If God be for us, who can be against us? We don't realize that he's here. Even in the problems, he's still with us. For Jesus feeding 5,000 people, they've been out in a wilderness area all day long, men, women, and children, old people, young people, people who are sick or infirm, um, people who are struggling in different ways. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. And um, the disciples said, look, you've got to send these people away. Uh, they've been here all day, nothing to eat, out in the wilderness. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, no, not a problem. You feed them. Well, these disciples, they, didn't, they couldn't even feed themselves. How are they going to feed 5,000 men plus the women and children? 
That's a lot of people. 5,000 men plus the women and children because whole villages came out. The gospel writers tell us Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was just giving, setting a little quiz for his disciples. Are you going to grow in your faith here? Are you going to trust God? Or do we look at the magnitude of the problem and the limitedness of our resources and say, man, there's no earthly way. And they would be right. There is no earthly way. But Jesus was with them. And so Jesus gets up. He's got this small boy that's got um, a couple of buns and some, a few small sardine-type fish. And he holds them up before God, gives thanks and praise, and they feed all of those people with 12 basketfuls left over. More than enough. Super abundance. More than they ever asked or hoped or dreamed could happen in that desolate location. Because Christ was with them. Or even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying, and he's crying out to the Father. He's got the disciples there. He's waking them up because he wants them to see and understand what's taking place here. How do we face difficulties and problems and challenges? How do we go through suffering that God has initiated and brought to pass for our good? Paul's thorn in the flesh. It was a painful thing. And Paul, in his suffering, cries out to God on more than one occasion. And he's crying out to God that he would take this from him. He calls it a messenger of Satan. And he tells us, Paul does, that God allowed them that to keep him from becoming conceited, too full of himself. Do we have problems with that? Becoming too full of ourselves? Do you think God sometimes allows things to happen just to remind us who we are and who he is? Paul is crying out and he says, this is a messenger of Satan and it's tormenting me. And he's crying out to God and he says, God, free me from this. God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. If he's on his own in his pride and arrogance, um, he's not going to look for grace. If I am self-sufficient, what do I need God for? But we aren't. None of us. So God put that there and refused to take it away so that Paul would trust God and learn to know him better and see himself in the proper light that God created him to be. It was an act of God's grace that the thorn of the flesh remained in Paul. You think about Job, and this was a man who suffered, and he didn't know why. A lot like many of us. Things happen, we don't know why. And in those times when we don't know, we trust someone who does know, and that's the Lord. Job makes 
an uncomfortable statement in Job chapter 36, verse 15 and 16. It says that God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Many of us in the church, we think, man, I wish God would speak more plainly. I wish I could hear him better. Oh, well... Do you pray more when you're in trouble or when things are good? Most of us pray more when we're in trouble. Do we pray more intensely, the intensity and frequency of our prayers? When things are difficult, when we run into a challenge, uh, we pray more. There's an alternative. Job talks about it later on in that same chapter, verse 21. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. You've got a choice. Walk through the affliction and learn who God is, or rebel and walk into sin. Which would you choose? Either course is painful and it's going to cause suffering. Either one. How are you going to meet it? There's this passage about the sufferings of Christ. It talks about afflictions here. And let me ask you, when you think of affliction, what do you think of? Sickness. That's normally what we think of. Well, that's part of it. But it means poor, needy, weak, poverty, depression, being downcast or humbled, pressure, we would call it stress, tribulation, oppression, death, persecution. All of these are nuances of the words that mean affliction in Old and New Testaments. It's modern-day society and culture. Stress, depression, affliction, trouble, anguish. So these are things that we're familiar with. In Isaiah 55, he's talking of these are part of the um, passages that have been applied to the Messiah. That's Isaiah 50, with a zero, 50, verses 4 through 11. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And he makes this statement. That's a strange statement when you first look at it. Whom among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip themselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. This is what you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So you can go the way of the Lord, or you can light your own way, go your own direction. And the results are there. So he says a couple of things here. The listening ear results in the instructed tongue. The words aren't coming from this guy. They're coming from God. Because he has stood in the counsel of the Lord and received a word. And it's the word of God that sustains the weary. And the Lord has opened his ears. But if you want God to open our ears, we cannot be rebellious. Rebellion against God closes the ears and blinds the eye. This is why God was mourning and lamenting earlier in Isaiah. And he said, who is is as blind as my servant, as deaf as the one chosen by me? You've seen many things and you don't understand Because God's people um, were not willing to have the obedience that opens the ear and to hear the word that sustains the weary. And there's a price. It's the context of persecution and suffering here. But he says, God is the one who vindicates him. So, how can the servant of the Lord who fears God and obeys his voice, walk in darkness and have no light, down there in verse 10. wonder what it was like in the jail at Philippi. Paul and Silas in there, beaten because they brought deliverance and freedom to a slave girl. Publicly beaten. It was against the law because they were Roman citizens. Nobody even asked. It's a mob thing. They grabbed him ripped off their clothes, threw them on the ground, and beat them. Then they picked them up and threw them in prison, um, in shackles, in the dungeon, in the secure prison, and closed the door. So when they realized where they were, with all the pain and the sorrow and the darkness in that dungeon in the middle of the night, about midnight, here's the servants of the Lord hear his voice, 
walking in the fear of God there at Philippi in obedience to the heavenly vision. And this is where they are. In the darkness, they have no light. So how do they respond? Man, I must have missed that vision. <laughs> this didn't kind of work out the way this mission trip was planned. <laughs> well, let me tell you. So they're down there bleeding and bruised and hurting in every part of their body in jail. And nobody knows and nobody cares. They're in a foreign place. What's their response? Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. They begin to pray. They begin to sing praises to God. When God's people respond in that way, that's the context for miracles. Hosanna. It's a song of praise, but it means save us. So when Jesus asked Peter to walk on the water and he got out and he started to sink, when he was saying Hosanna, he wasn't worshiping. <laughs> he was saying, God help me, I'm sinking here. <laughs> I'm going to die. And God helped him. Lifted him up and brought him through. Psalm 119 gives a little different picture of suffering and affliction. And I want to look at just a few verses here. Psalm 119, it's the longest one. And we want to start with verse 67. And he makes these amazing statements. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, now I keep your word. wonder if that could have been Paul's testimony, persecuting the church, throwing these people in jail, confiscating their property, and God meets him, Jesus appears to him, he's struck blind for three days. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now, I keep your word. There was a redirecting of Paul's whole life. You know, he had told him earlier in that vision, it's hard, Paul, for you to kick against the goes. God is poking you. God is sticking this painful experience in you to try to redirect you to say you're not living the way you're supposed to live. And Paul, in his strong will and determination, says, I'm going to live the way I want to. And Jesus met him, struck him blind, and said, three days to think this over. And he came out with a different point of view. Before I was afflicted, now I keep your word. Later on, 119, verse 71 it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. When we place a value statement on things, this is good, this is evil, this is right, this is wrong, whose standard are we using? Most of the time, if I say something's good, it's something I like or something that feels good or something that I enjoy or something that I want. But God's understanding of good may be for me to run into a real problem that stops me cold and says remember 
there is a God in heaven and you do not have control over your life. Your life is not your own. It's a gift. And then later on in Psalm 119, this is just the one psalm, verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Do those who fear God, when they see you, do they rejoice? Or do they look at me and say, oh no, because <laughs> this guy again, you know, anyway. Uh, I know, O oh Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. There's Paul and his thorn in the flesh, isn't it? Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And so this is the testimony, one psalm, and there are many other verses that we could add to all of these. Isaiah 48, verse 10, God says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you, literally I have chosen you, in the furnace of affliction. And earlier in Deuteronomy 4, when God was talking to the Israelites, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. He put them there to teach them and instruct them and to prepare them for this. So later on in Isaiah 63, verse 9, got this really a good passage here. Starts at the end of verse 8. The right chapter, there it is. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Literally, what that actually says is in all of their affliction, he was not a foe. In their affliction, he was not against them. This is the Old Testament counterpart to Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, it's one that we all know. It's been abused many times. And he talks about the Spirit interceding for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What he's saying is that God is working in and through everything for our good. For our good as God sees it, not as you and I see it. Because what he's about is working character and integrity, building relationships, not only with him, but with one another. 
So God is at work in every situation to bring good out of it. Hebrews chapter 12 instructs the church there, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. In the prison in Egypt, Joseph sitting there for a crime he hadn't committed, the grace of God was available. He could have missed it. But he reached out and embraced it. In the prison at Philippi, beaten and sore in a foreign land in the darkness, Paul and Silas, the grace of God was there. They could have rejected it. They could have missed it. But they reached out and they found it. C.S. Lewis um, quote that is you hear often from the problem of pain he says pain insists upon being attended to in other words we're doing something that cannot be ignored it forces itself to our attention and the longer we put it off the more insistent the more pressing it becomes right pain insists upon being attended to God whispers to us in our pleasures Are we listening? He speaks in our conscience. Are we paying attention? But he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I wonder if in our pleasures, if we listened more, there would be less pain. We get so caught up in the pleasures and in the enjoyment of those things, and rightly so, they're gifts from God. But when we look at the gift and ignore the giver, we are in trouble. Paul's response to all of this in 2 Corinthians, and he lists there in chapter 1 and then later on in chapter 11 all these things that he went through and it's a, it's a pretty daunting list all the sufferings and the beatings and the shipwrecks and the pains and the, all the things that he was going through and his comment about all of that in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word glory comes from a, 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 a word that means weight. It's heavy. So if you, if you had a chunk of, of, a big chunk of gold here, that thing would be heavy. You see on the movie they pick those things up and somebody's carrying them. And uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. That stuff is heavy. <laughs> and he says the glory of God is a weight. And he says we are preparing ourselves for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. 
Nothing, nothing can compare. We can't conceive, the mind can't imagine. It will never enter into our hearts. Paul tells us the things that God has prepared for those who love him. The good news is we don't have to because God thinks about it for us and then he reveals it to us. And as we walk with him through the difficulties. So when we think about um, the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23, what does he say? I'm going to yank you out of the valley? I'm going to put you up on the mountain? No. It says, you're walking through the valley. Well, where are you, Lord? David understood. I fear no evil because you're right here in the valley with me. Why is God there? Because you're there. And he loves you. And so wherever you are, that's where he is. And whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's because of sin or because of sinful choices or rebellion, God is there saying, it doesn't have to be this way. And I am here for you if you want. So, the love of God expressed through His Son for you and for me. That's how much He loves us. Take us through the difficulties and the way to eternity is not the glory road that comes later. The way to eternity leads through the cross. Not only for Jesus, but for you and for me. So that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And um, again, our church does this every Sunday. And we have open communion. It's available to anyone who wants to participate. It's for sinners. And we, that's all of us. Sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. And so anyone who wants to participate, you are welcome. Um, Jesus didn't die for the righteous. He died for the unrighteous, which means he died for everybody. Even the righteous are sinful. They just don't know it. Uh, but they are. Everybody else knows it. Uh, all around them know it. And so the Lord says, um, the answer to the sin problem, the answer to the slavery and the bondage lies through surrender and losing our life in the great love of Christ. And he invites us to come. So if you want to participate, you are very, very welcome. Um, don't feel pressured of any kind. If you're uncomfortable with that, not a problem. But... You are welcome if you choose to come. Also, um, there'll be somebody over here who would be happy to pray with you. If there's something you want someone to pray with you about, there will be people there that will be able to pray with you. Um, and so you can, you can do that or not. It's just we want you to feel comfortable and at home here in the presence.